Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. You're listening to West Coast Live, and our next guest is the author of numerous wonderful short stories and two memoirs. The first was called This Boy's Life. It was made also into a motion picture with Alan Barkin and Robert De Niro. His uh, latest memoir, now out in paper, is called In Pharaoh's Army, Memories of the Lost War, and it's up for a National Book Award, the results of which will be announced on the 19th of this month. Please welcome Tobias Wolf to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for stopping by. My pleasure. Your, uh, your current home is in uh, upstate New York, in Syracuse, where you've been teaching creative writing since 1980. Before that, part of your career included working as a waiter here in San Francisco. Where, where, did you, where were you a waiter? Lair's Greenhouse and Potting Shed. Has anyone ever had the uh, pleasure of eating there? Or there on, is it still open? I wouldn't uh, recommend it. <laughs> I know what goes on behind the door. <laughs> All right, that's a personal opinion of Mr. <laughs> Tobias Wolf here. <clears throat> no. That's not fair. I got fired. Uh, <laughs> I'm a disgruntled employee. <laughs> Why were you fired? Uh, because I was clumsy. <laughs> there was always a spot of grease right outside the door, outside the kitchen, and, uh, and I never seemed to be able to walk through it without dropping about 10 plates. And uh, I became too expensive to carry. They, I gave a whole new, I gave a whole new uh, spin to the notion of uh, minimum wage. The restaurant ended up becoming an earner of the minimum wage because of the breakage. <laughs> so it was a, a, an economic decision on their part. What about uh, the decision to be a writer? I mean, this was something you, you wanted to do. With, what, something settled into your mind at age 16 to do this? Yes, that's, uh, that's, I was about 15 or so when, when I decided to be a writer. I had been writing ever since I was very young uh, and loving the act of writing. I'd read a lot, uh, but I'd never really thought of myself as one of those people whose books I was reading or something that I could be. And a friend of mine, when I was about 15, he, was, uh, he didn't know any more about the writing life than I did. I mean, he was just another 15-year-old kid in concrete Washington. But he said, I had written a, a story for him to turn in for extra credit. To, <laughs> and uh, he, he told me afterwards, you know, you ought to be a writer. And it was funny how that coming from somebody else, no one had ever said that to me before, kind of stuck with me and changed my way of thinking about what I was doing. It gave me a sense of, well, that's right, I'm doing the same thing they're doing. And they were my age once. They weren't always Ernest Hemingway. They were once just Ernie at one point. And, <laughs> And, uh, and so it gave me uh, uh, th that one little thing that that guy said, which I still remember, uh, uh, really sort of changed my life in a way, I think. You remember what the grade was on the paper? <laughs> I don't know. I, I had done a lot of that. In fact, a friend of mine from those days, when this boy's life came out, called me up, and he had become, if you can imagine this, a stockbroker in Fairbanks, Alaska. And uh, it, uh, it's, I don't... It, it, it's, a, it's an odd world. Anyway, he, he, um, he's, the, the hiss was on the line, and he called me by a name I hadn't been called in about 30 years, Jack, and I knew I, I was either in trouble or I was an old friend. I didn't know which. And, and he said, uh, do, you re do you remember that story you wrote for me for Miss So-and-So? And, -so? and uh, 
he reminded me of it. It was about a family of Italian acrobats. I know a great deal, as you can imagine, about Italian acrobats <laughs> and high-wire artists. And, uh, and the, the, the plot of the story was that the, uh, that the family uh, wanted to collect the insurance on the stern, tight-fisted patriarch. And so they emptied the water in the pool into which he dove as the finale of his act. That was the, that was the ending. And, uh, and, he, and I said, that, I, I'd kind of forgotten about that. He reminded me, and then it all came back. I said, that's great. I said, y what'd you get on it anyway? And he said, uh, I got a C. <laughs> I said, a C? I was deeply offended. Uh, my first bad review. And he said, uh, well, he said, I thought it was unfair. So I went up to her after class and said, this is not a C story. This is an A story. And she said, uh, yeah, it's an A story, but you didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, so the C was actually for the level of Khan, I guess, then, right? Everybody got a C. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's that kind of a world. The, uh, your memoir of in Pharaoh's Army talks about Vietnam, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a work that came more from memory. You didn't keep a journal at the time, but you went off to war, what, thinking it would be material for being a writer? Not really. I didn't, uh, by the time I was sent over to Vietnam in 1967, I had really ceased to think of this thing as material, I have to say. Uh, but inevitably, because I am a writer and I was there, it did uh, become something that I felt moved some 25 years later or so to write about. But uh, no, that, that kind of predatory uh, approach to experience where you look at everything as if it were, you know, it's just something to be written about, you get, um, you get a good enough scare and that idea goes out the window for a while. You talk about close calls, one of which included, uh, sort of one of the reasons you joined the Army was somebody tried to kill you with a, uh, a ship's propeller, or a boat propeller. I was working, I, I left uh, high school without a diploma, and I was working on a, uh, on a ship. And there was a man on this ship who, for some reason or other, uh, decided that he really didn't like me. I never had exchanged any words with him. It was just a dis strange thing that you encounter sometimes in life, this unremitting hostility from somebody. And I was taking a nap one afternoon when I was supposed to be working under a lifeboat. Uh, it was a, a runabout and it had a pretty big propeller, and I was resting my head on the propeller. And uh, I heard somebody, you know, I kind of woke up, and there was somebody walking on the floorboards above me. And I sat up, and I kind of rubbed my eyes, and all of a sudden, boom, the motor leaps to life, and this propeller's spinning, and, and it would have just decapitated me. And so I got up and looked, and there was this guy, and he was looking down, and we both understood what was going on. And I did not rejoin the ship after my next leave and uh, ended up joining the Army. Now, in retrospect, it seems a very odd thing to do to join the Army to get away from someone who's trying to kill you, but uh, <laughs> such was the logic of my youth. Well, I'd like to take you, I'd like you to take us to, uh, to Vietnam now through a, a brief section of, of your book um, that sort of describes sort of the temporal quality that you encountered there. This is a description of, I thought I would just take something uh, that we take for granted, the most ordinary activity, getting in a car and going somewhere. Over there, that became transformed entirely because the roads were places where a lot of people 
a lot of Americans got killed. The mines, snipers, things like that. So you were always tense, always frightened on the road. And fear has a way of elongating distance and time. And this is a description, just of a meditation on a trip I was to, on a drive of my sergeant and I were taking to an American base. I was out in the boonies with a South Vietnamese unit when I was over there, but we were going up there to try to get a television set to watch a Christmas special on that night, a bonanza. Anyway, <laughs> this place was called Dongtam. How far was it to Dongtam? Hard to say all these years later. But it would have been hard to say then, too, because distance had become a psychological condition rather than a measurable issue of meters and kilometers. A journey down these roads was endless until you arrived at the end. No seams about it. It was endless until it was over. That was the truth of distance. The same with time. Our tour of duty was a year, but neither I nor anyone else ever used the word. You never heard it at all. The most we dared speak of were days, and even a day could lose you in its vast expanse, its limits stretching outward beyond the grasp of imagination. Indeed, just about everything in our world had become relative, subjective. We were lied to and knew it, misinformed innocently and by design, confused. We couldn't trust our own intelligence in any sense of that word. Rumors festered in our uncertainty. Rumors, lies, apprehension, distant report, wishful thinking. Such were the lenses through which we regarded this terra infirma and its maddeningly self-possessed, ungrateful people whom we necessarily feared and therefore hated and could never understand. Where were we really? Who was who? What was what? The truth was not forthcoming. You had to put it together for yourself. And in this way, your most fantastic nightmares and suspicions became as real to you as the sometimes unbelievable fact of being in this place at all. Your version of reality might not tally with the stats or the map or the after-action report, but it was the reality you lived in that would live on in you through the years ahead and become the story by which you remembered all that you had seen and done and been. Tobias Wolf, reading from In Pharaoh's Army, Memories of the Lost War. You talk about uh, subsequent close calls to the one of, uh, similar to the one of the propeller, but these close calls were in, in Vietnam, and the one that haunted you most was when you were standing um, in a commander's tent, a room somewhere, and some lieutenant needed to be sent out to help the Vietnamese in the middle of a fight. And you describe the way the hand fell on a shoulder, but it wasn't yours. Yes, it was just one of those strange things. Um, senior officer walked over, and you know the way a football coach will lay his hand on a player on the sidelines during a game, won't even look, right? There's just his big body there, and they'll kind of park their hand there. You see it on TV. I haven't played football at that level myself, but you, you, you know what I mean, that gesture. And um, senior officers will do that sometimes. You know, they won't even look. They'll just come over and they'll put their hand. It's a proprietary and rather fatherly gesture. And these two, I was standing beside this young man. I was the same rank that he was, same age, just about. 
And the senior officer put his hand on his shoulder, could have been mine, I was standing next to him. And when it became evident that w someone was going to have to go out in the field in the middle of this fight and call in uh, um, helicopters to take the wounded out and to um, uh, get air support, that kind of thing, he just turned to him. He looked at him for the first time, and that was who, who got sent out. And uh, he was killed. And it does tend to uh, absorb your thoughts later on to think that if you had been standing where he was standing, uh, that the hand would have fallen on you. And it seemed to me, in a way, the perfect image of the way one's luck operated over there. You know, if you'd gone down the road, Two, two, two vehicles ahead in the convoy, it would have been you who got blown up, that kind of thing. And so you're very aware of that all the time. Uh, it really is the way we all live, actually. I mean, I was coming across the Bay Bridge last night and there was some terrible accident. It is true that you do not know the day or the hour, but you become very aware of that over there. What uh, subsequent close calls have you had as a, as a writer? Have you tried to avoid, you know, uh, <laughs> sources of conflict, of flying bullets, of... Uh, yeah, my, my uh, I mean, the big risk I take these days is whether to use that adjective or not. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I'm a, I'm, I, I, I have three children and that's adventure enough, you know. So uh, when you decide to, uh, to use an adjective or not, uh, what, what do you weigh? I mean, is it, is it going to be, are you going to consider it maybe too purple or too literary? Is it alliterative enough to, too alliterative? All of that. <laughs> All and more. <laughs> now, you want to find, when you're writing, the voice that is true to you and that can tell the story that you have to tell at that moment. And maybe it'll be another voice the next year for the next story, but there's a, it's like a song, you know? You don't sing every song the same way. You don't write every story the same way or every book the same way. You have three children. How old are they? Uh, we have two boys, 16 and 15, and we have a little late visitor, a six-year-old daughter. And what do you tell them about your stepfather and your father? And do they ask, have they read the story of, 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 of this boy's life? My sons have read the story of this boy's life. I really never talk about my stepfather. I talk about my father a lot uh, because he was such a warm and funny and unusual man. And, uh, my boys are both great musicians. They're both jazz musicians. Terrific. And, uh, my father, that, he, they got that from him. And I, I love jazz myself. I never played it, but he was a real authority. He knew everything about it. And in fact, when he was a young man, he used to sit in, he played the ukulele. And there was a time when that you could play the ukulele with the old kind of jazz, uh, and he, so he, he jammed with some of the old, old, old jazz musicians, even once with Louis Armstrong when he was young. But uh, in his later years, he be, I mean, he was just really, uh, uh, he knew everything about it and passed that on to my brother, somewhat to me, uh, and my sons have picked that up. So there, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which I find myself talking about my father as I get older. You, uh, your brother Jeffrey, also a, a writer, published writer, um, who wrote that uh, wonderful book about Duke, yeah. your father, the, the fraud, the con, mm -hmm. and so forth. Have you seen any of this tendency in your own kids? Do they try to pull anything on you? <laughs> if they do, they're experts. <laughs> you know, the, uh, they say you can't fool an honest man, but, uh, you know, maybe they're fooling me. 
I don't ever see it in them. I find them to be completely straight, actually. Very high-minded, uh, and I don't see any duplicity or anything like that in them. Uh, at what point in your life would you have chosen not to write a paper for somebody else? When, uh, when they stopped paying me. <laughs> Tobias Wolf, published writer. is a new book uh, in paper in Pharaoh's Army, Memories of the Lost War, published by Vintage, as a previous memoir, uh, This Boy's Life, and uh, collections of short stories. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live today. My pleasure. Tobias Wolf. <laughs> this is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.